So last Thursday, I was driving home from the office, and it was about dusk, and I was passing a big field on our road, and I looked out, and I saw a couple of does running across the field, and behind them was a huge buck. And as a deer hunter, I'm telling you, when I see a buck, look, I don't care if it's season or not, I'm going to take a shot. With my camera, come on, what kind of person do you think I am? But anyway, um, so I see this buck, and so I pull over, and I'm just watching this dude run across the field. That's not the actual one. That's just a for instance of what it looked like. It was just really cool to see him running. And while I'm looking across that way, I look down on the ground right there in the field, and there was a pair of shed antlers that a buck had dropped. And it was just so cool to find those. Man, they are like a needle in a haystack. I watch for those, and I hike and look for those. I've only found a few ever. But I wanted you to see them because it was just such a highlight for me to come across them. And so, so this is what the pair uh, looked like when I found them. And it's really unusual to find them both together because a lot of times they drop just one at a time. So that was really kind of a cool thing. But when you look at these, you would say, well, those come from a deer, but that's not a deer because there's a whole lot more to a deer than just antlers, right? If you want a whole deer, you're pretty much going to have to hunt a deer. And you can do it with a gun, you can do it with a bow, you can do it with your car. How many of you have ever hit a deer with your car? I mean, just just quick show of hands. Okay, okay, yeah, me too. I joined the club. Um, how many of you have actually killed a deer with something besides your car? Just give me a quick. Are there any? I've got a few people. Okay. All right, here's the big question. How many of you have a deer head hanging on the wall in your house? A, f- a, few, of, a few of us? Okay. Okay. Um, how many of you had a wife who said, over my dead body? <laughs> okay, so you don't need, you don't need to, to show hands. So I've got a couple of deer heads on my wall, and I'm proud of those. I think that they're, in fact, hang on. So this is my best one, okay? And I think it's really cool. You say, why didn't you hang it up the whole time? Because some of you are appalled that I even have this in here. And so I was tempted to hang it up during the whole service, but I chose not to. But, but you look at this deer and, and you say, I mean, it kind of looks alive. If I hid this in the woods coming out from behind a bush and you stumbled across it, you would think that deer is alive because that's the whole point of taxidermy, right? Is to take something that's dead and make it look alive. The point is to create the illusion of life. That's what I want you to think about. Taxidermy creates the illusion of of life. Okay. All right, big fella, you just sit tight right there. Okay, we're going to put you back to sleep. Okay. All right. The whole idea is to take something that's dead and make it look alive. Jesus is going to talk to us today about a church, and that's exactly what was wrong with this church. It looked alive but really it was dead. We have been in this series, and we are looking at seven letters that were written to seven churches in the book of Revelation, and these churches were in seven ancient cities in Asia. And and these letters were written from Jesus himself. He had the apostle John write them down. And, And some of the churches were really strong. 
Some of the churches were really weak. Some of the churches were kind of a mixture of both. But there are lessons that we can learn from all these churches about the kind of people we need to be and the kind of church we need to be. The series is hashtag up to us with the idea that if we're going to be a strong church, it's up to us. If we're going to be a healthy church, it's up to us. If we're going to make a difference in this community and around the world, it's up to us because God delegated this responsibility to us. And so just like the letters in Revelation, we started with a church in Ephesus, and basically Jesus said that they needed to wise up. Their motives were wrong. They needed to work on their love and their grace. The church in Smyrna was told to toughen up. Persecution was really hard for them, and unfortunately it was about to get harder, and he wanted to prepare them. Pergamum, the church there, was told to grow up. They had watered down the faith, and they really needed to renew their commitment to the, to the truth. They were a lot like the prophet Balaam in the Old Testament. They were almost right, but still wrong. And then last week, we talked about Thyatira. They needed to shape up. They were kind of like Queen Jezebel in the Old Testament, who brought idol worship into Israel. Um, They had allowed the pagan culture around them to just really turn them toward idols. And the way we wrapped things up last week was to say that, look, idolatry is still a problem today. Not necessarily bowing down before a statue, but when we allow anything to become more important in our lives than God, that thing, whatever it is, has become an idol for us. Well, today we're going to see what Jesus had to say to the church in Sardis. Like the other cities in Asia, Sardis was a city that was devoted to pagan worship. There was a temple there, and the remains of it are still there today. And they celebrated there the goddess Artemis and also the mother goddess Sibylle. And worship of Sibylle focused on fertility, and it involved shrine prostitutes, group sexual encounters, and perversion of all kinds. I mean, these celebrations made Mardi Gras look like a church Sunday school picnic. You know, I mean, I'm just, this, it was just out of control. And that's the environment that this church in Sardis was planted right in the middle of. Now, Sardis was a wealthy city. We saw that in the video. The first coins in history were minted right here because precious metals were uh, just kind of readily available. The city was thought to be untouchable because it sat high upon some cliffs. It was assumed that no army could breach its walls. The problem is that the the army and the people became complacent. If you were paying attention to the video, the city was actually captured twice before the time of Christ. Once, a guard fell asleep. His helmet fell down the side of the cliff there. He went out sort of a secret door. He went down a hidden path. He fetched his helmet and came back up. And there were some Persian spies who watched that happen. And they slipped in that way, got the army in, and were able to take over. A few centuries later, the Greeks did roughly the same thing because the army had become careless and lazy. That kind of overconfidence and arrogance unfortunately made its way into the church. This is a dramatic example of culture shaping church rather than church shaping culture. And the complacency that happened in Sardis as a city worked its way into this body of Christ. It's why Jesus spoke so harshly to the church. What I want to do is kind of walk you down through these verses. There are some key things I want to help you understand because there's a little bit of confusion here. And then we'll talk about why it's so important to stay vigilant. 
But this, this starts out in Revelation chapter 3. So let me read verse 1 to you. It says, To the angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Now, who's talking here? Well, it's Jesus. He's dictating these letters to the uh, Apostle John. And, and we learned in the first week of the series that when John had this vision of heaven, there were seven lampstands in heaven that represented the seven churches. And Jesus was holding seven stars in his hand, and it represented the seven messengers who were going to be sent to the seven churches. But here it says that he's holding, Jesus is holding seven spirits of God. And, and this is just a, a fairly strange idea to comprehend. We talk here as a church and throughout Christianity, we talk about the Trinity. This idea that there is one God, but he exists in three distinct identities. God the Father, God the Son Jesus, and God the Holy Spirit. And here it says that Jesus is holding his hand the seven spirits of God. And some people have suggested these are seven angels... But there's a word for angel, and it's not here. That doesn't seem to be quite right. Some people say this should be translated the sevenfold spirit of God because the number seven was considered a number of completion, a number of fulfillment in Scripture. And so by calling the spirit or attaching the number seven to the Holy Spirit would suggest that he is complete in himself. But still others say, well, there's just some symbolism that's going on here. Jesus is going to be sending the Holy Spirit to each of these seven churches. And so in some way, in some form or fashion that we don't fully grasp, there were seven representations, seven identities of the Spirit that were getting ready to be released to the seven churches because it focuses so much on seven here. I lean toward that. I'm not sure. If you're just totally confused right now, pretend like I never brought it up. Okay, it's not the most important part of what I want to talk about. The key here is the indictment that Jesus pronounces against the church. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Like taxidermy, you look at the church in Sardis, and your first thought is, man, that church is full of life. The problem is you dig down below the surface, you get to know the real story, you spend some time with the leaders, maybe you start watching the the church members when they're outside of church. It doesn't take long to figure out this is not a healthy church at all. In fact, this is a dead church. You know, people talk about how perception is reality. Have you heard that phrase? What they mean is that what people perceive to be true can become true for them. If you meet somebody and they come across as nice and friendly, well, you start to perceive them as nice and friendly, whether that's their true character or not. Maybe you meet somebody on their worst day. I mean, it's like the worst day of the year for them. And you think, wow, that's just a grumpy person. And you perceive them as that, even though maybe you totally missed who they really are. You just caught them on a bad day. Perception becomes truth to you, whether it's based on truth or not. And Jesus says the perception of this church just isn't true. This church has a reputation for being alive, but the truth is, they're not alive at all. 
And it makes me wonder first, not about the death, but about the perception. What was it that made this church appear to be alive? Were they busy with lots of programs? Were they always doing fun things in the community? Did they have a a huge Easter egg hunt every spring and bouncy castles for the kids on the weekends? and, And the music was exciting and the sermons were engaging and the preacher was ruggedly handsome. I mean, you know, what was it about this this church that everybody thought, wow, they got it going on there? The numbers are up, the giving's up, everybody enjoys the show. But then you dig down below the surface a little bit and you say, there's just no substance here. You pull the curtain back and and you look in and there's factions and there's backbiting and there's cliques and and people are kind of self-satisfied and sort of arrogant and marriages are, are falling apart, kids are being abused and nobody seems to care. And Does anybody really love Jesus there? And it just doesn't seem to be the case at all. They put on a good show though. What did Jesus say? You have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. This is like his first major criticism of this church. Their reputation did not match reality. They were a facade. They were actors on a stage. The outer shell looked pretty good, but deep down inside, everything that looked alive, not so much. Are you familiar with the name Jonathan Edwards? He was the preacher who helped bring about the Great Awakening here in America decades before the Revolutionary War. Edwards, way back in the early 1700s, talked about how prone we are as Christians to believe one thing, but then live a lifestyle that was completely opposite of that. In other words, as he put it, our practices don't follow our principles. And he says, what happens when we live that way? We have inner conflict. And then he says, what happens when we have inner conflict? One of two things. Either we change our practices to align with our principles, or we change our principles to align with our practices. Don't miss this. It's really important. We either start living according to what we believe, or we simply change our beliefs to excuse our behavior. That's the easy way out, isn't it? Well, how could God expect me to stay married? I finally met the love of my life. Surely he wants me to be happy. Okay, I I know I I pad my expense account a little bit, but let's be honest. They don't pay me what I'm worth. I'm just kind of balancing the scales a little bit here. Okay, okay. I know the Bible says I'm supposed to forgive my enemies and even love my enemies, but if you knew what she said to me, you would understand why I need to let all my friends know exactly what kind of person she is because that's the right thing to do. They have a right to know. This church in Sardis is on life support, and it's because everybody looked pretty good on the outside, but they were mostly dead on the inside. They were living lives that were contrary to what they said they believed. So what does Jesus say to this church in verse 2? Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of God. This church was not totally dead. They were only mostly dead. Okay, that's a shout out there to Princess Bride for any of you who know that. Okay, never mind. All right, all right. This church needed to wake up, right? They needed to kind of snap out of the fog. They needed to make things right. A couple months ago, I was racing out the door. I needed to get here for a meeting, and I 
took my morning pills right before I went out the door, and I take a vitamin in the morning and then a supplement that helps with blood pressure. Only I did not take my morning pills. I accidentally took my nighttime pills, which include an allergy pill that makes me sleepy and a melatonin that makes me really sleepy. And as soon as I swallowed them, I said, oh, my gosh, I took the wrong pills. And Gail said, spit them out. I'm like, spit them out. That train has left the station, okay? That's not going to happen. They are down. And, and so I came to church, and I had a staff meeting, and I took a nap because I was sleepy. Wake up, he says. you got to snap out of it here. You, you can't keep doing what you're doing. You got to get busy. You got to get back on track. You got to get back doing the things that God wants you to do, the things you're supposed to be doing. Wake up, he says. Which kind of brings us to another symptom of their lack of life. They kept failing to finish what they started. In verse 2, I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of God. He said, You don't complete anything. You, Oh, you start things, but you don't finish anything. And I know this is a tough one. Maybe somebody's elbowing you that you're sitting next to right now. You know, it's fun to have big ideas and to get started on projects. And maybe you cast a little vision and you get some other people on board. And it's exciting. But then it's a lot harder when the going gets tough or when there's some resistance or people complain or things don't work out quite according to plan. And pretty soon the wheels kind of fall off and the whole project gets left in the dust. It's easier to start a project than it is to finish it. it. It just is. And when a church is alive, they don't just start things. They don't just have ideas. They actually complete things. They don't just talk about helping the poor or visiting the sick or reaching out into the community. They actually do those things. They don't just dream of investing in missions or hiring more staff or starting new small groups. They actually do those things. And I wonder if there's anybody here who would admit to saying, you know, sometimes I say one of these days I need to, and it's always just one of these days. And one of these days becomes one of those days. You know, I I haven't visited that person in the nursing home that I said one of these days I was going to stop by and see. And I, I haven't tried that small group, and I haven't reached out to that homeless person that I keep seeing and wonder if there's anything I could do to help, or I, I haven't introduce myself to that new neighbor across the street or I I haven't gotten baptized or I haven't invited my friend to church or I haven't prayed for that person that I promised that I would pray for them. And, and, And I've been saying one of these days, one of these days, and one of these days just never seems to roll around. Friends, proof of life, one of the proofs of life is when we finish things that we start. And I think one of the things that can put us on life support pretty quick is when we just keep starting things and we never finish anything. And that certainly happens in the church. And Jesus says, wake up. You've got to do those things that matter, and you can't just start them. You have to complete them. And there's another thing about the church in Sardis. Jesus is talking about their sinful behavior, and it's like they know better, they knew better, but they... They were accountable because they knew better, okay? They knew better, and therefore they were accountable. The beginning of verse 3 says, Remember what you have received and heard. Obey it and repent. The believers in Sardis had heard the gospel. 
They knew the truth about Jesus. They knew what it meant to to live a life for God. This letter from Jesus was not to the unbelievers in the city of Sardis. These were not the men and women who were out worshiping idols and and all that. These weren't the people who knew nothing of the, the mercy of God or the grace of Christ or the power of the Holy Spirit. These were believers who knew better. They just refused to surrender. When I was a young pastor in my first full-time ministry in Madisonville, Kentucky, (laughs) yeah, how about that? I faced a lot of apathy in that little church. Now, look, there were some great people there. There were people who loved the Lord there. But, but I just seemed to really notice there that there were a lot of people whose names were on the church roll. These were hardworking, busy people, farmers, coal miners, husbands of women who were active. There were some grown kids that were kind of on that list. And they had made a decision for Jesus sometime in their past, and they had just basically disappeared. We talk about people being C and E Christians, Christmas and Easter Christians. And I know that those kinds of folks are everywhere, but this church had a number of them. To be honest, they were more like just E Christians because we never saw them at Christmas even. It was one time a year, like clockwork, you could guarantee that they were going to be there. And as I have kind of matured, hopefully, in my faith and in my ministry a bit, I've come to the conclusion that one of the reasons I love Easter is because I'm going to get to speak to people who I only get to talk to once a year and I pray that maybe one year it's going to stick, you know, and and so I try to see that in a positive light. But when I was 22 years old, I found myself frustrated with Easter. These folks would dress up in their best clothes and they would come in once a year and then they'd march back out. I know that I'd see them again next April. And so that year, kind of during the sermon, I'll just confess, I unloaded a bit on people who come to church once a year and feel pretty good about doing God a favor. And it was not my best sermon. It was not my best presentation of the gospel. And uh, I think I had a lot to learn about building bridges with people who were far from God. But um, after the service that day, one of the husbands, a farmer in the community who had a big operation, even bigger reputation in the community. He walked out, and he basically said to me on his way out, I heard you loud and clear, preacher, I won't be back next year. And that kind of wrecked my Easter, to be honest, but I've also thought about it a lot since then. And I wish that I had handled that sermon differently, but I also wish that I had gone to him later, and if he wouldn't sit down with me, that I at least had written him a letter And I wish I had said something like this. I wish I would have said, Ray, please, just help me understand. Why do you come once a year? I mean, do you come for you? Do you come to make your wife happy? Do you come because it's a family thing you just grew up doing? Why do you come? Do you come because you think God's going to be happy about that? Is it just a habit? Really, I want to know. What is it? And then... I wonder if I might have thought to say something like this, right? If you hired a a full-time employee for your farm and this guy showed up one day a year to work, would you be pleased? Or, Or maybe think of it like this. If you had a family member who lived just down the road and he never talked to you, never waves at you when he goes by, you call him, he never answers, you leave a message, he never calls back, and then once a year he walks into your house to have lunch. Would you consider him a close relative? Would you say that there's a relationship there? Would you in any way feel like he was close to you just because he lived close to you? 
I wish I had helped Ray understand that hearing the gospel, believing in Jesus, even being baptized into Christ doesn't really mean very much if nothing ever changes about your life and if there's no relationship with the Lord. It's not all about church attendance. I don't mean to make it sound that way. I don't like checking a box every week. It's just that the church in Sardis, they knew better. They, they understood that they were accountable to the gospel, and yet they didn't seem to care. You know something else that made this church dead? They were not ready for Christ's return. The end of verse 3 says, Jesus says, If you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. We see language like this in the book of 1 Thessalonians, where the apostle Paul says that Jesus' return someday is going to be like a thief in the night. Not for those who are believers. It's going to be like an exciting party for for them. But for the people who aren't ready, for the people who refuse to surrender to Christ, it's going to be like a thief in the night. It's going to be as scary as somebody breaking into your house, as a burglar invading your home. I don't know if you know the name Keith Green. Keith Green was a Christian artist back in the 1970s. He was kind of a hippie. He, he really reminds me of the movie clip we watched a little bit ago. Keith came to Christ uh, out of the darkness, really, and he wrote dozens of songs that were just as raw and as real as you would expect from somebody who came out of the dark into the light of Christ. And I remember it was July of 1982. Keith and 11 others were killed in a plane crash. And just like that, he was in the arms of Jesus. And I had just graduated high school, and I love Keith Green. I was just devastated that he had been killed in this, in this plane crash. And one of my favorite songs by him is called Asleep in the Light. And he talks about the church, a church maybe a lot like this one in Sardis. And these words are not there, but you get the idea that this is a church that's productive, a church that's busy, it's active. Maybe they've got a solid reputation around town, but everybody in the church is asleep. And nothing is changing in the church. Nothing is changing in the community. Nobody's being saved. Nobody is growing in their faith. And I think the most profound line in the song is this one. The world is sleeping in the dark that the church just can't fight because it's asleep in the light. The world is asleep in the dark, but sometimes the church is just as asleep. They just happen to be sitting in the light. How's this for a bottom line today? If you're asleep in the light, you might as well be in the dark. Because if you're asleep, it doesn't matter. Jesus says, wake up. Wake up, church. Not only are we accountable for what we know and understand from Scripture, but Jesus says, I'm going to come back. You need to be ready. And there's a lot of disagreement over what all the symbolism and all the metaphors in Revelation mean. But if you read the book of Revelation, it becomes crystal clear that Jesus is coming back. Okay, that is irrefutable. And complacency won't cut it. And laziness is not going to get the job done. And carelessness might just ruin everything. We need to wake up. We need to be ready for when he comes. If we're asleep in the light, we may as well be in the dark. Now, Jesus' letter to Sardis does contain some hope. There are a few people... Even though this church is gasping for breath, figuratively speaking, and the the crash cart is on standby, not everybody in the church was dead already. 
There were a few holdouts. There were some people who were refusing to, to give in to the culture that was a mess and to the church that was a mess. Listen to what Jesus says to them in verse 4. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white for they are worthy. He who overcomes will like them be dressed in white. I will never blot out his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my father and his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. A friend of mine sent me an article the other day about three recent movies that in some way or another, there are characters in the movie that portray followers of Jesus. And as is often the case in Hollywood, the Christians in these movies are either weak, stupid, or corrupt. And that's the attitude of a lot of people in the world today. Well, you can't trust Christians. You sure wouldn't want to live next door to one. And you know, they're the problem with the world anyway. And it kind of makes me wonder sometimes, why are people hostile to Christians? Why do people seem negative about followers of Jesus? And I kind of ask myself, is Hollywood simply reflecting how culture already feels? Or is Hollywood shaping culture by telling people how to feel about Christians? And it may be a little bit of both. But friends, I also believe this, and I know this is true. We have got to stop giving them ammunition. Right? If if the world is going to be negative to the church, we have to make sure that it's not our fault by how we love or don't love, by how we serve or don't serve, by how we live or don't live the Christian life. We need to be above the critique. We need to be above the accusations. We need to wake up and be on track with the Lord. And and, and Jesus says, for those who are awake, for those who refuse to be polluted by the pagan culture, for those who have remained faithful in the face of opposition and contamination from the world, those who've been unwilling to compromise their values and their integrity, they are going to walk with Jesus in garments of white. Their names are going to be written in this book of life. They will never be blotted out. They will never be erased. They will never be forgotten. Oh, they weren't perfect in this life. Not that at all. But they're forgiven and they are declared righteous in the sight of God. And I love this. It says that those who are faithful, he will acknowledge them before his father. And that word acknowledge in the Greek here is a very strong word. It suggests the idea of giving testimony in a court of law. And I think about that, and I try to picture that a little bit. And I imagine someday at the end of time, and we're standing before the throne, and, and God looks out, and he, he just starts naming some names. He says, Paul? He says, Nicole? He says, Ken, Alice, Mary, why should I let you into heaven? And man, the pressure's on, right? Because eternity hangs in the balance. And maybe it's like your mind goes blank and you're not quite sure what to say. And and your your knees are knocking a little bit and and your your words are kind of stumbling along. And and, and it's like, uh, and then Jesus speaks up. And he says, it's okay, dad, she's mine. It's okay, he's, he's one of mine. Whew. God says, well, that's cool, come on in. <laughs> Why didn't you say so? And, and that's it. It's not that you have to defend yourself and try to explain why there ought to be a fighting chance because remember that time you, you did that really good thing? I don't know. 
Jesus says, that was mine. Okay. Friends, I'm not sure the stakes have ever been higher than they are right now. Because the church in many places has been asleep. And we need to wake up and we need to realize that Jesus is waiting for us to be who he's called us to be and to do the things that he's called us to do. And we need to make a difference. We cannot be complacent like the church in Sardis. We cannot be careless. We cannot go to sleep. Because if you're asleep in the light, you might as well be in the dark. We need to wake up. Let's pray. Father, we we love the passages in Scripture that just talk about how much you love us and how you've adopted us as your children and how your grace is so much bigger than our mess. And and, and we, we cling to those promises. We need to hear them. But sometimes the word can be pretty hard, too. And there's a reminder here that this was a group of people who knew the gospel and they had surrendered before the Lord, but they were, they were asleep. They were alive on the outside and dead on the inside. And, and God, there's, a, there's just a, a hard reality here that we have to deal with, that sometimes we can look pretty good on the outside and we can be pretty sick on the inside. And so, God, I, I pray repentance before you, Lord, that for the times that we have been phony, for the times that we've pretended to be faithful and we're not, that you'd forgive us. But God, I also pray that you'd give us courage and strength to stand up and be your people, that we live in a culture that, that more and more doesn't respect you or love you or value you, and we want, to, we want to stand against that, not in an ugly way at all. We want to build bridges for people. But God, we want to take a stand. We do want to, we want to wake up and we want to be dynamic. And so we need you to help us, God, in the times that we're weak and the times that we're complacent. And so we come before you today asking for you to help us. And we thank you that you have through Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.